Uh, Police, would you come with me again to 1 John chapter 1? So John's first letter and the first chapter of that letter. 1 John chapter 1. We don't usually start a whole load of series at once, but at the moment we've got we've just finished a series in home group and on Sunday mornings and on Sunday evenings. So so a whole load of uh, new series starting. And this evening we're starting a new series in one John. I'm intending that over the next few weeks we just work our way through this letter. So why should you listen to one John? Why is it worth listening to? Well, the main reason Well, the main reason, actually, is it's God's word and all of this is worth listening to. All of it comes from God. But the main reason for one John is given in chapter five, verse 13. John tells us why he was writing. Chapter five, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John says he's written so that you can know if you have eternal life or not. Well, what could be more important than that? Knowing if you have eternal life or not, knowing are you safely in Christ? And John says that's the point of his letter so that you can know it is possible to know, to be sure. But it's also a book about confidence in the truth. It's a book about what we should expect in the fight against sin. And it's a book with a lot to say about love. So plenty of reasons why it's worth listening to one John. This evening, we're just in chapter one, verses one to four. We won't get beyond verse four. Why listen to those verses? Well, John also tells us what they are about. Verse three and verse four, he tells us why he's writing. This is written So you may have fellowship with God and his people. And this is the way to complete joy. These verses are about joy with a solid foundation. That's why these are worth listening to. But before we get into them, uh, that's the subject of this evening. But before that, uh, just a little bit about what was going on when John wrote. False teachers were troubling the church, whatever church this was written to. We don't know what church it was, but it seems to be written to a particular church that was troubled by false teachers. They'd been influenced by Greek thought that said the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. And since the physical is bad, they said the son of God could not have become a physical man. At best, the spirit being God, the son, could have joined himself to the physical Jesus for a while. But the son of God didn't become the physical Jesus. And because they thought the spiritual is all that matters. Well, what you do with your body, do you sin? Do you care for the poor or not? Those things don't matter. So they said. And these false teachers had left the church. Chapter two, verse 19 tells us they've left. But that wasn't the end of the trouble because they left behind a church that was demoralized and confused. The false teachers seemed so clever. They claimed to have special knowledge from God. They seemed so superior. And the Christians left behind thought, have we really got the truth? Do we personally really have eternal life? And they felt rather abandoned by the people that matter, uh, lacking fellowship. 
And so it's in that context that John wrote this letter. And it's a letter that is, I'm going to give you two pairs. And children, I'm going to use some words you might not know, but I hope you like learning new words, long words. He wrote a letter that is polemical and pastoral and that is to give us confidence that is both both objective and subjective. This letter is polemical. Polemical means a written or spoken attack. And one John is an attack on false teachers. But it wasn't an attack because John just liked to win an argument. It's pastoral and pastoral means shepherding the church, caring for the church like a shepherd cares for sheep. And that involves fighting wolves. So John is going on the attack in order to care for the Christians, to protect them, to reassure them. And to reassure them, he gives confidence that is objective. It's in it's in the actual truth about Jesus. You can be confident in the truth about Jesus. But he also gives confidence that is subjective. It's that means confidence about personal experience. Do Sorry, Joseph. Um, I think the camera's turned off. Um, can you check it and replug it in, please? Sorry to interrupt the service. I'm getting a note. Can you hear me, Philip? Philip, you're muted, so I can't hear you. Yeah, we can hear you clearly. Good, good. Well, I can't get the camera to switch on. Okay. And I've just checked the plug, and the plug is in. The plug is in. The power is on. But the camera doesn't want to actually switch on. So I can't see anything obvious. I just can't get it to switch on. Um, you can keep on preaching with the audio. I think David. Yeah, I, think, I think that's what I will have to do. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Okay. Okay, I, that's good. Sorry about that, everyone. I uh, can't get the camera to switch on, but it seems to be plugged in. So we'll just have to put up with this for the time being. So John's about giving them confidence that is objective, objective. He wants them to know they can have confidence in this truth about Jesus, but confidence also that is subjective. They can know whether or not they personally have eternal life. Well, that was my introduction to the context the letter as a whole is in. Tonight, we're going to just look at the first four verses. And in these first four verses, here we're introduced to a joy that is worth seeking because it I'm going to tell you four things about it. Here's a joy that is worth seeking because it, first of all, is rooted in eternity past. Verse one. That which was from the beginning, that which was from the beginning. Now, if you know your Bible, does that make you think of anything? That which was from the beginning. 
Uh, Maybe it makes you think of John's gospel, which starts in the beginning was the word. Maybe it makes you think of the beginning of the whole Bible in the beginning. God created here in John's letter. He says he's again talking about something from the beginning. What is it? Um, By the way, I should warn you that John's writing goes round in spirals and sometimes it's hard to follow. Uh, You have to get to verse two and you find he's talking about some sort of life. Verse two, the life appeared. Uh, We're going to have to wait to find out what this life was. Uh, But first of all, maybe we should ask, when was this beginning? Uh, Is it the beginning of the New Testament age? Is it the beginning of the people of Israel back in Exodus? Is it the beginning of the world? Well, it turns out it's even further back than all of those. Verse two. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from the father and has appeared to us. The eternal life. This this whatever John is talking about is called the eternal life. Now, I expect, you know, that John's talking about Jesus. Uh, That's clear if you put verses one to four together and especially if you put them together with the start of John's gospel. But to start with, he doesn't call him Jesus. He calls him this mysterious name, the eternal life. It sounds almost like an abstract idea, but but it's not an abstract idea. He's a person and he's a person who was with the father. So John starts with the beginning and he starts with the beginning because he's saying, go back and back and back and keep going back. Because the son of God is as far back as you can go because he's eternal. And that means he had no beginning. Now, we can't get our minds around this. We can't get anywhere near getting our minds around this. So I'll just try to help you a little in. I don't even know how to pronounce this, but I'm going to call it Sequoia National Park in California. There's a giant redwood tree. And this tree is known as the president. And it's well, can you guess how old this tree is? This tree is. Can you guess how old giant redwood tree? It's three thousand two hundred years old. Well, what was happening when that tree was a seedling? Think of this. There was there must have been a day when when that tree sprouted. And when and when a seedling started to grow, what was happening back then? Well, the, it's so long ago, it, you can't even go back to the time of Oliver Cromwell or uh, now you, you've got to go back to the time when city states were just starting in Mesopotamia and Egypt and China. And that giant redwood, that very same tree It's lived through the rise and fall of the Roman Empire and the British Empire. It's it's lived through the time when people were writing on tablets of slate and when people were writing on tablets made by Samsung. It's it's amazing. Three thousand two hundred years, one living being. But if you put that giant redwood tree on a timeline and the timeline is the life of the son of God, That giant redwood tree would just be a tiny speck 
on a line that disappears off across the universe in both directions. That giant redwood tree, 3,200 years, it would be just a speck. Where would you be? The son of God is eternal. And that means the son of God was not made. There was never a time when he started to exist. That means he's not a creature. And the only other option is he's the creator. Those who don't believe that Jesus is is actually God. Well, verse two of one John one is enough to answer then. And the eternal life, that means he has life in himself. He is the eternal life. He has life in himself. Our life, well, our life depends on food. Our life depends on air. Our life depends on our parents giving it to us. He's the eternal life. And yet, strangely, that life was given to him. You must. How's that possible? Well, I don't know. But but we're here encroaching on the mystery of the Trinity. I'll give you an example of how beyond us this is by one verse that John wrote back in his gospel. I'll read you John five, verse twenty six. For as the this is Jesus speaking, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. Now, if you think about that verse, you wonder, how is it possible? Jesus says he has life in himself, but he says it was given by the father. Or you might say, how, how can the two be possible? Surely it isn't in himself if it's given. Well, this is the mystery of the Trinity. It's just beyond us. If he just said he had life in himself, it would make him another God separate from the father. If he just said he was given life, it would make him another creature. But what it says is he has life in himself and it's given. The son of God is eternal and he's eternally one with the father and he's eternally flowing from the father. And if you ask me to explain further than that, I can't because I can't pretend to understand this. But my aim is simply to raise your thoughts about the son of God and get you to worship him. Our verses are about joy that is it's rooted in and depends on this eternal son of God. And next, secondly, it comes from Jesus who appeared in history. Verse two. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. Notice it says the life appeared at the beginning of the verse and again at the end of the verse. So the life might sound like an idea or a principle that's been around forever, but it's not. It's a person. And this person appeared. This is known as the incarnation. Children, we've got another long word for you. Incarnation. Do you know what that means? It means being made flesh. And that's a good word. Because John is insistent the son of God isn't some spirit being. He became physical. He became flesh. Have a look at verse one. John says we have heard him. He says we've seen him. And then in case you might think he means metaphorically, you know, if you explain to a blind person Einstein's theory of relativity, the blind person might say, oh, now I see why E equals MC squared. I'd always wondered. I see. 
But John says, no, it's not that sort of seeing. I've seen with my eyes. And I've even touched him. And I mean with my hands. I'm not talking any metaphor here. And he says it again in verse two. And he says it again in verse three. He really wants us to get this. This is phenomenal. Think again of that timeline. That giant redwood, you can't even comprehend a giant redwood being 3,200 years old. And yet it's just a speck. Just a microscopic speck on the timeline of the Son of God. And yet the eternal Son of God became touchable. And he got a voice box. And he even, uh, some of us have experienced this, got one of those voice boxes of a teenage boy that goes squeak, screechy when his voice breaks. And John listened to and heard that voice box working. And around 30 AD, you could go to Jerusalem and see a man hanging on a cross. And the blood dripping from him had real red cells. And his gut had bacteria living in it. And his organs were packing in for lack of oxygen. And he was the eternal life that was never made and had always been with no beginning. I once heard a debate between Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, and John Lennox, who's a a Christian professor at Oxford University. And it was a bit heated, but it was basically civil as they discussed the origins of the universe. Is there a God or a power behind it all? Can you have morality without believing in some sort of deity? And it was all fairly civil until at the end, John Lennox mentioned Jesus and Dawkins exploded. He said, we've been discussing these big principles and now you make it so local, so particular. This man in the Middle East back in history. Well, a Muslim I was once trying to tell the gospel to, he said it more rudely and more bluntly. He, with a look of disgust, said to me, your God had to eat food. Your God had to go to the toilet. He was shocking. And I was shocked. And I'm glad he shocked me. Because this is shocking. The eternal became flesh. Now, do you remember the context of the letter? It was a church troubled by false teachers. And John is being, here's that word again, polemical. He's going on the attack. You're wrong. I actually touched Jesus. He was real flesh. And John is being pastoral. He's giving believers confidence in the truth. I actually saw him and heard him and touched him. You can be confident. He is why we can have joy. But but how does that joy get to us? So here's the third thing. It comes to us by being proclaimed. Verse three. Verse three. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. It comes to us by being proclaimed. Let's get back to Richard Dawkins saying it's so particular. It is so particular and local. We claim that everything depends on one Jewish man who lived in one small area of the world and he didn't leave that area for just over 30 years, around 2000 years ago. It's so particular. 
but it must all depend on him because he is the eternal life. So how can we receive anything from him or have anything to do with him when he's so far removed from us? Well, John says, I'm going to proclaim him to you. And he says, I can because I have eyewitness testimony. Look at the start of verse two. We have seen it and testify to it. People, including John, wrote what they saw. Verse four, he wrote it down and it's been passed down to us reliably so we can know the truth. But John is also able to do it, not just because he saw, but because Jesus commissioned him to do this job. He can he can say it with authority. And so in verse one and again in verse two and again in verse three, he says, we proclaim, we proclaim, we proclaim. John didn't have a highlighter. Do you have a fluorescent pink highlighter or a fluorescent yellow? This matters. John didn't have a bold function or caps lock on his Microsoft Word. So he he had to do repeating to say, look, this matters. Take notice and proclaim means he teaches with authority. It is a claim that unlike the false teachers, he's been appointed by God. It's a bit like this. Imagine you're in Nottingham 600 years ago and the king has a new law. Now, how are you going to hear that new law so that you don't break the law? Well, probably a town crier, a man in a special uniform, ring a bell and he rings his bell and he shouts out for all to hear. He speaks on behalf of the king. He tells everyone this is the king's message. Other people can discuss it. Other people can repeat it. But only the town crier can say, I speak on the king's behalf. Here is his message. And that's what John did. And that's what preachers called by God do today. That's the way God has appointed for us to get to know Jesus and so have this joy with a solid foundation. The way God has appointed is not go into the countryside and contemplate nature. It's not seek some spiritual experience in in a way that you determine. It's not having a discussion group. You can benefit from all three of those. But the way God has appointed is people commissioned by Jesus, recognized by his church, acting as his herald, like his town crier saying, here's the truth about Jesus. Believe it. John is is a proclaimer. And it's for the sake of joy that, fourthly, lastly, is experienced in Christian fellowship. It's experienced in Christian fellowship. Verse three. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, I hope how this all links together is clear. I think John makes it clear. John is telling them about Jesus. Verse three, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard because it's only through Jesus they can have fellowship. 
verse three, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And this fellowship with between Christians relies on fellowship with God. Our fellowship is with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. And this fellowship brings complete joy. We write this to make our joy complete. I think that John's logic there and and the chain of things he's describing is quite clear. I hope it is to you. But there is a problem because it relies on this word fellowship. So we better get clear what fellowship is. What is fellowship? Well, fellowship was a word used for a group of people working together. So you might have a fellowship of craftsmen who get together and work together. It's a bit like today. We might be more familiar with a partnership of architects or a partnership of accountants. We have far more accountants than craftsmen, I suppose. So they had a fellowship of craftsmen. We have a partnership of accountants. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a working word. It's also a word linked to marriage. So it's a word connected to very close relationships. Now, put those together and you get fellowship is sharing, working and sharing together on the basis of relationship. And this may be brought to life if you think about John himself. Do you know about John? The Apostle John? What do you know about his daily life? Do you know what his job was? Well, he was a fisherman. Who did he fish with? Well, you might know he fished with. James. And because they fished together, they had this little fishing business together. They shared together. What did they share? Well, I suppose they shared an aim. Their aim is to catch fish. I presume they both had that aim. Be rather awkward if one of them was aiming instead to shepherd sheep. You can't do that from the boat. And and they shared together in this way. They'd work as a team. I presume they pull in the net together. They divide out jobs between them. They shared probably a boat and some fishing tackle and they presumably shared the profits between them. Why did John fish with James? Well, you might know that's because James was his brother. It's a family business. Why was James his brother? Now, some of you might be thinking that's a silly question. Some of you might be seeing where I'm going with this. So I'll ask again, why was James his brother? Oh, because both James and John had the same father, man with the wonderful name of Zebedee. Now, do you see where this is going? It is a picture of Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship is people who have the same father, God. And because they have the same father, they're brought into relationship with each other. They're brothers in the New Testament language. We'd say brothers and sisters. And so they share the same aim, the glory of God, and they work together as a team. Philippians one says we're partners in the gospel. It's the same word as fellowship, but there it's translated partnership. And and so those people share their time and their lives because they're family now. They're not just like a family. The Bible says they are a family, got the same father. So I hope you see from that fellowship isn't just a chat after the service. You know, if you join in over Zoom for the chat afterwards, don't think that bits the fellowship. Oh, yes, I hope we will have fellowship. But don't think that is fellowship. 
because anyone can chat after the service. But John says in verse three, you can't have fellowship with me unless you know Jesus. Then if we all know Jesus, we can have fellowship. So it can't be just chatting. Chatting is good. But fellowship is something more than that. Fellowship includes worship. Fellowship includes working together, just like the fishermen go off and catch fish. We go off and catch people for Jesus, fishers of men for him. Fellowship isn't just in the quietness of reading the Bible and praying on your own at home. And in the quietness, you feel fellowship. Well, I hope you do. And we can have fellowship with God then. But John says in verse three, I want this fellowship with other Christians. And what he is talking about is described in Acts 2. Do you know the end of Acts chapter 2? And it describes this busy church. It's packed with 3000 people. And, and there they are and they're listening to each other uh, and, and they're talking and they're questioning the apostles as they hear the teaching about Jesus. And they're praying aloud together and they are lying around tables, eating bread and drinking wine. And as they do so, talking about what Jesus has done for them and they are enthusiastically singing praise of God. And then they're going off to the temple together and telling more people about Jesus. And all of that in Acts 2 is described as fellowship. Fellowship can be a very busy, noisy, active thing. It's not just quietly contemplating. Fellowship is partnership in the gospel, sharing family life together because God is our father in Jesus Christ. By the way, across John's gospel and his letter, you find this fellowship is what eternal life is about. This is the purpose of salvation, this fellowship. Evangelism isn't just about producing converts. It's about drawing people into this fellowship. If our evangelism stops short of drawing people into this fellowship, there's something deficient about our evangelism. Now, John, he tells us in verse three, he's already got fellowship with God. But he wanted to share this with the Christians he was writing to, because, verse four, this would make his joy complete. And I think there's two ways this would make his joy complete. I think one of them is those who know God can experience more of him together with his people. That's why we sang Psalm 42. Uh, from what I remember, it didn't come up in the version we sang. So that's a pity. But in Psalm 42, it's an expression of desire for God, but it's desire for God together with his people. Uh, that's also why we read Psalm 16 at the beginning, because it was desire for God together with his people. Or in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 3 says the church together is the temple of the Holy Spirit and the house of God. In other words, it's the place where we as a family meet with God by his spirit. So I reckon that's one reason why John says I've got fellowship with God, but I want it together with you because it will be even richer an experience of God. But I reckon another reason is because. John has got this joy of knowing God, but our joy is enriched when we can share it with others. Isn't that true on so many levels? 
Uh, the other Saturday, I passed through the village of Saxelby. I thought it was a lovely looking village. For those who don't know, tiny little village tucked away somewhere near Melton Mowbray. I thought that's a lovely place. But the trouble is I was on my own. I just looked through on my own. So what do I want to do? What will make me enjoy it more? To go and look at it again with other people and share it with them. So I took my children along and we looked at it together. I don't know if they appreciated it as much as me, which spoils the illustration a bit, but it doesn't make the illustration invalid. When we enjoy something, we want to share it with others and then we enjoy it all the more. Those who enjoy God surely want to share him with others. And then those others get the joy of knowing God's and we get more in more joy by enjoying him with them. And so John says, I want to share with you about Jesus. No, I'm not just sharing with you, actually. I'm proclaiming with authority, but I've got an interest in this. It will give me even more joy. What does the world get joyful about? What gets the world excited? Liverpool have won the Premier League. Hooray if you're a Liverpool supporter. But does it really make you happy every day that they've won the Premier League? Does it really make that much difference? Making money. Oh, that gets people excited because that will bring them joy. Well, many of us heard recently from Jeremy Marshall, who'd been a banker to very ultra rich people. And he said some of them can be very miserable. The holiday of a lifetime, that gets people excited. That will bring me joy. Well, I hope this summer you do enjoy a holiday. But they do pass, don't they? And you can't live on memories. And you've got to go back to work. Victor Hugo, famous author, he wrote Les Miserables. He said, life's greatest happiness is to know that you are loved. Well, John here proclaims to us the message of Jesus. And this message of Jesus says, if you are trusting him, if you are repenting of sin. And that's very important in John's letter. If you are repenting of sin, you are loved. You are loved by God himself. You are loved by the eternal one. And the evidence is seen in the eternal one becoming flesh to die for you. And the result is fellowship with God being drawn into his family. The life of his family. It's rooted in eternity past. It was demonstrated in history past in real flesh. And it will give you complete joy in eternity ahead. Do you have that fellowship with God?